Well, let me just say it is great to be back with you guys this weekend, but I am not going to lie to you. I am missing myself some Montana. I tell you what, if you relocated here from Montana, I need to talk to you, find out what's really going on. What are you running from? Because when we were in Montana, in fact, I picked four reasons that I want to live there. One day in July, the high was 68 degrees. The low was 38. I checked here, it was a million degrees with tropical humidity. I thought, there's one. We were in a county for three days, and while we were there, they had their first reported case of COVID-19. How refreshing is that, right? And I'll tell you the third thing. In Montana, they love America. I'm telling you, back here in North Carolina where you couldn't get together, you couldn't get together and have fireworks. Bozeman, Montana was a three-hour party of fireworks that night. It was incredible. But the best reason is I went to a rodeo. And before the rodeo, the MC said, I want everybody to stand while we pray and ask God to bless this occasion. And I stand and we stand and he prays for God's blessing, God's protection, health on the riders. He thanks God for Jesus who made salvation possible and closed the prayer in Jesus name. Amen. I thought a revival was going to break out right there at a rodeo in Montana. I told Laura, you pull that in Raleigh. ACLU will be on your porch the next day. You know what I'm saying, right? But it's a great place. So I've decided we're scrapping the Fuquay campus. Montana, here we come. And that's where I'm going to preach every weekend. It's going to be absolutely incredible. Feel free to come along with me. Now, this weekend, we are starting the third part of an ongoing series that we've been involved with here at Hope over the last few years. We call it Origin Story. And this is a series where we are actually working our way through the Bible. And so each summer, we set aside five weeks and we look at five books of the Bible, and we get an overview of these books just to see how they fit into the big picture, how they fit into God's story. And if you were with us a couple of years ago, it makes sense that if you're going to teach through the Bible that you start in the book of Genesis. And so we looked at the Pentateuch. You may remember it means the five books. And we looked at the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Last year, if you were with us during the summer, we looked at Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel. And this year, we're looking at First and Second Kings. We're actually going to skip First and Second Chronicles. And the reason we're going to skip it is because it's very, very repetitive if you've ever read through the Bible of 1st and 2nd Kings. So we're going to look at 1st and 2nd Kings. Then we're going to look at Ezra. Then we're going to study uh, what I think is the, the life of the greatest leader in the Bible. His name is Nehemiah. And then we're going to wrap up this series by looking at one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's the story of Esther. And let me just remind you why we actually do this series. Uh, you may or may not know this, but most people think that the Bible is a book. But I got news for you. The Bible actually isn't a book. The Bible is actually a collection of 66 books. Now think about this for a second. These 66 books were written by 40 different people over a span of 1,400 years, covering three continents and written in three different languages. That's the Bible. And I tell you that because I want you to understand, it's not like a group of guys got together at Starbucks one day and said, hey, we should write a Bible and maybe we can start a brand new religion. And they put their heads together and wrote the Bible. 40 different people over a span of 1,400 years. That means most of these people never even lived in the same era. They didn't talk to one another. They didn't have email or internet where they could visit or they could conspire. 40 people over 1,400 years. But this is what's amazing, and this is why this is so important. It's because from the beginning to the end of the Bible, from Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation, 
The Bible holds true to the same story, and the story is this. God created mankind to be in a relationship with mankind. Think about it. When God created Adam and Eve, they didn't have to do anything to be in the relationship with God. They were in the relationship with God, but you know the story, right? They blew it. They sinned. They destroyed the relationship, and the rest of the Bible is really nothing more than an epic love story where God is coming up with the gospel plan to be implemented so that mankind would have a way to be back restored into a relationship with God. So we go through this series. We're finding out how these books fit together in God's story because when you think about it, our life isn't really our story. It's God's story. We all play a role, but at the end of the day, it's God's story. And this weekend, we're going to take the first book. It's 1 Kings. And in 1 Kings, I'll just tell you ahead of time in case you get bored and want to check out early. It's this. We're going to be reminded that one of the challenges of being a parent is the divorce between what happens at work and what happens at home. Because if we're honest, a lot of us, we hit a home run when we go into the marketplace, when we go to the office, when we go to work. But you know what? What difference does it make? What good is, is it if you strike out at home? And you're going to see that that could be true of David. Think about this. Israel's greatest king was an incredible success from a marketplace perspective. I mean, think about some of this. He reigned for 40 years and he was undefeated in battle. David, as a king, never lost a battle. Not only that, he was unsurpassed in the area of imports, exports. All trade routes because of David and the economy, they came through Israel. On top of that, he expanded the borders more than they had ever been expanded in the nation of Israel. I'm telling you, he was an incredible king. He was an incredible leader in the workplace. He was an absolute disaster at home. And I think it's because David was so busy fighting battles, so busy writing poetry, so busy composing songs, so busy building a strong economy. Guess what? He won over everybody except his family. And as you're going to see, as a result, his children basically turned against everything that David stood for, everything that he believed, everything that he loved. My point is simply this. David, as a king, had no equal. But as a father, as a parent, he was a great disaster. And so understand as we study 1 Kings, we are studying the backwash of David's home life, or I might say the lack like thereof. And I hate to kick a man when he's down. And I say that because when the book of 1 Kings opens, we have come to the end of David's life. David is actually on his deathbed. David is dying. But you immediately get an idea, a little glimpse into what his home life was like. For, for example, you immediately meet a young man named Adonijah. Adonijah is one of David's sons. This is what it says in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5. Now, Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith. Now, I want to point something out here. Adonijah's mother was Haggith, okay? So she's David's wife. In just a minute, we're going to read about Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba. I think we all remember Bathsheba. So there's wife number two. We know that David's first wife was a woman named Michael, who was King Saul's daughter. And you're like, whoa, whoa, how many wives did David have? Well, if you do the research and the study and take the time, I can find that David had at least 12 wives. And I just want you to hang on to that. Some, I, heard, I heard the moans and the groans out there from some of the men, right? But I just want you to hang on to that thought. It's going to play a part in our story. Now, Adonijah, whose mother was Haggath, put himself forward and said, I will be king. See, he's thinking, Dad's going to die. Somebody's got to be king. Why can't I be king? So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. Nothing like a little pomp and circumstance. But notice verse 6. His father had never rebuked him by asking, why do you behave as you do? That verse tells us that Adonijah was never confronted, he was never corrected 
by his dad, by David. And as a result, Adonijah had no idea what was right and what was wrong. And it's because David never ever pulled him aside and says, hey, this is what right looks like and this is what wrong looks like. And the very same thing could be said of the relationship that David had with another son. His name was Solomon. You're gonna discover that he also didn't know right from wrong. And as a result, when Solomon, who actually replaces David as the king, when Solomon takes his place on the throne, everything he's learned about marriage, he's learned from his dad. Everything he's learned about parenting, he's learned from his dad. Everything he's learned about how to lead a nation, he's learned from his dad. And since we know that David was a great leader, it shouldn't surprise us that he was a great leader also. But there's a moment in 1 Kings chapter two, I wanna show you something, where David is right before he dies. He pulls Solomon aside and he gives him some incredible advice. Let me show it to you, 1 Kings chapter two, verse one. It says, when the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I am about to go the way of all the earth. In other words, I'm getting ready to die, okay? So this is what he says, Solomon, be strong. Act like a man, observe what the Lord your God requires, walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. Do this that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. What was the promise that God made to David? Well, here it is. If your descendants watch how they live, if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you, David, will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. So this is some last minute advice that David is giving to Solomon. Now my guess is at this moment, Solomon is a basket case. Think about this, let's put it in perspective. He is getting ready to take over the throne that his dad, the great King David, has spent the last year building this nation. He's gonna take it over. He's never lost a battle. He's built this economy. It's an incredible success story and Solomon is only 20 years old. And so it says in 1 Kings chapter two, verse 10, David rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. He had reigned 40 years over Israel, seven years in Hebron, 33 in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father, David, and his rule was firmly established. So now we have the reign over, of the third king of Israel. The first one was King Saul. And then after King Saul, there was King David. And now we have King Solomon. And over the next few chapters in 1 Kings, we learn that God appears to Solomon three different times. It actually forms the outline for the whole book of 1 Kings. Let me show you the first one. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5, it says, At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Wow. Have you ever thought how you would answer that question? Can you imagine God coming to you in a dream and saying, whatever you want, I will give it to you. So ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, well, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You've continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. Now, Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Notice what he says, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. That's just another way of Solomon saying, I have no clue what I'm doing. And a lot of the reason he has no clue what he's doing is because of his upbringing. He doesn't know what's right, he doesn't know what's wrong. So he prays in verse nine of 1 Kings three, give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people 
and to, look what it says, to distinguish between right and wrong. And God hears that request and it pleases God. And so God answers Solomon's prayer. And you'll find out through this book that Solomon is given by God great discernment, great wisdom, great riches, great fame. In fact, it says in verse 29 of chapter four, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight, a breath of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the East, greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. That is way more than his father David ever wrote and composed. And then it says in verse 33, he spoke about plant life, from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He also spoke about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. From all nations, think about this, from all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. And there is no YouTube, there is no internet, but through the trade routes, words spreading all over. I mean, can you imagine Solomon's popularity? People are coming from all over the world to hear his TED Talks. I mean, this guy is bigger than Oprah, and that, we know that's big, right? He's an expert on botany. He was an expert on architecture. He was an expert on art. I mean, knowledge just spilled out of Solomon's life. By the way, do you know what that tells me? It tells me that just because maybe you come from a dysfunctional home or a dysfunctional family, that doesn't disqualify you from doing great, phenomenal things with your life. So don't hide behind that. Don't use that as an excuse. God has given each one of us talents, gifts, abilities. Not only that, the psalmist says that each one of us, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. So understand, God has done his part. God has positioned every one of us for greatness. That's his job. He's done his part. What's our job? What's our part? Our job is to discover those abilities, discover those gifts, to discover those talents, and then to use them to expand God's kingdom, to use them to change the world. Let me tell you something. You do not have to be a product of your environment. You don't have to live your life as a victim. I don't care how dysfunctional your home may have been. It's a lie. Don't buy into the lie. Now, when you get to chapter five, six, seven, and eight, Solomon finally builds the temple. Remember his dad wanted to build the temple. Remember that? David had a palatial palace and he noticed that, remember God in the box, that's God, the Ark and the Covenant was still in a tent and he thinks this is just wrong. I'm in a palatial palace and God's living in a tent so I'm gonna build God a temple. But then God says, no, you can't do that. You're a man of war, you got blood on your hands. I need a man of peace. I'll let your son Solomon build the temple. So finally, Solomon builds the temple. It's an incredible structure. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. And then after he finishes this, by the way, I read just the other day that the precision of the blocks, they were cut to such precision that when the craftsmen slid them together, they made no noise whatsoever. It was an incredible structure. Came, in from, came from the mind of Solomon, from the hands of the craftsmen. And then after, after they have the temple, well, you gotta dedicate it. I mean, if it's a temple to God, you gotta dedicate a temple. And so uh, Solomon prays a prayer of dedication, little Bible trivia here. It's the longest prayer of dedication of anything in the Bible. And then after this prayer of dedication, they decide we need a worship service. So they have a worship service, not just any worship service. This is a worship service that lasts for 14 days. Now I smile because I remember when we used to meet together as a church, right? Remember those old days? Some of us are here, but we used to all crowd in on the weekends, right? You remember how you felt after the worship leader made a stand for like three songs in a row? 
Like, man, when's that dude gonna let us sit down? He's wearing me out, right? Think about a 14-day worship service. And then when they finally finished this 14-day worship service, it says in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 66, they blessed the king and then went home joyful and glad in heart for all the good things the Lord had done for his servant David and his people Israel. And I'm telling you, at this point in Solomon's reign, things couldn't have been better. He's off to a phenomenal start. The people are enjoying a time of incredible peace, incredible prosperity, stock market all-time high, unemployment all-time low. There is no fake news. I'm telling you, for Solomon, life is good. And then right at the height of Solomon's reign, God visits Solomon a second time. First Kings chapter nine, verse three, the Lord said to him, I have heard the prayer and plea you have made before me, I have consecrated, that's just a big Bible word that means set apart. I have set apart this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. That's what God promises, verse five. I will establish your throne over Israel forever as I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor, a successor on the throne of Israel. But you'll notice verse six of chapter nine, the very first word is what? But. But, it's a warning. Why? God's never warned him before. Here's your principle. It's because when life is a bowl of cherries, you're not aware of the pits. And I know what some of you are thinking. I wonder who said that, Socrates? Or you think that was Confucius, right? That's actually a Mike Lee quote. So let me just give it to you again, okay? When life is a bowl of cherries, you are not aware of the pits. And life is really, really, really good for Solomon. I mean, he is riding the wave, right? And when we find ourselves at those times in our lives, I'm telling you, listen to me, that is when we are the most vulnerable. And that's where Solomon finds himself. And so God warns Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 6, but if you or your descendants turn away from me, and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you, and you go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them. I will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Now, remember that. Remember that, because that's exactly what God ends up having to do. And so you're reading 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 7. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule. Among all peoples, the temple will become a heap of rubble. Verse 10, at the end of 20 years. Okay, let's think about this. Solomon has reigned for 20 years. We know that he was 20 years old when he took the throne. So now Solomon is 40 years old and he hits the proverbial wall and guess what he has? A midlife crisis. Jim Conway has written a book, Men in Midlife Crisis, and he describes what happens when a man goes through a midlife crisis. He says, three major forces converge on the man at this time in his life. First, some biological changes do take place. He's, he's losing physical vigor, muscle tone. His body weight is shifting. That's a nice way to put it. Uh, he's losing his hair. I read this and thought I could be the poster child for this guy, right? Death suddenly becomes more of a reality. Secondly, his psychological makeup, his ego, his self-image is affected. He begins to view himself as less of a man because his view of his self-worth stemmed from his physical strength. He may be having trouble or dissatisfaction at work. And because many men draw ego strength from what they accomplish, this may also hurt his self-image. He may think he's not the man he used to be. He may see that he's not going to meet all his goals, or perhaps he has met them and says, so what? Third, 
The third major area of his life being affected is his social life. The world in very clear tones tells him that there isn't meaningful life after 40 and he can't get a job after 45 or 50. Television commercials continue to affirm that youth is good, age is bad. Because he feels rejected by society, he begins to reevaluate his life in social areas, his relationship to his wife, his children, his career, his colleagues, his friends, the world around him, and his God. Now, I point that out because there's a lot of you tuned in this weekend, and you're at that stage. And I will just say, if you're at that stage, you are at the most vulnerable time of your life. Do you know why? Because this is the stage of life where Satan comes along and says this, you still got something to prove. You still got something to prove. And this is why at this stage, many men have an affair. But let me just say, this is no longer just a man thing. Over the last 15 years, this has become just as much of a woman thing. In fact, I had a lady in my office one day, a lady, I'd been in a small group with her and her husband. They had been around Hope Forever. This was years ago. And she came in and she said, I just need to tell you first before I tell anybody else, I'm divorcing my husband. I'm like, what? I said, did he cheat on you or something? She said, oh no. I said, is he abusive in some way? She says, oh heavens no, he treats me like a princess. And I'm like, and you're divorcing him? And she says, well, We've been married almost 25 years and we've never really had that sizzle and we've never really had that, 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 that spark. I call this the Hallmark movie syndrome, okay? Ladies, you watch Hallmark too much, you start, well, why isn't my marriage like that? Well, it's Hallmark, it's stupid, it's not real. So, okay, so let me just tell you, so we got that taken care of. Don't even watch it Christmas, okay? But anyway, <laughs> she says there's no spark, there's no sizzle. And so she says, I think I'm still young enough and I'm obviously still attractive enough and I'm like, you might want to back that one up just a little bit because, you know, I'm, I'm not so sure about that one, you know. But anyway, I think I can still find the man of my dreams where there'll be that magic and that spark and that sizzle. And sure enough, she divorced him. That's what's going on with Solomon. Like, what is there left in life? You ever read Ecclesiastes? It's his journal. And so with the words of God ringing in his ears and the nation of Israel hanging in the balance, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Uh-oh. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Termites, Sidonians, Hittites, all the ites. Now notice this. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them. Wait a second. Hold on a second. Is God a bigot? You can't intermarry with people from other nations? Is he some kind of racist? No, that's not it at all. He goes on and says, why? Because they will surely turn your heart after other gods. Chase talked about this last weekend. That's why in the New Testament it says, if you're a Christian, don't marry someone who's not a Christian. The book of Ecclesiastes says, how can two walk together unless they're agreed? If one's a Christian, one's not a Christian, you're going to have different principles, different values, different priorities. You're going to have one way to raise your children. They're going to have the other way. You're going to have one way to handle your finances. They're going to have a different perspective. That's what's going on here. God says, listen, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their God. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. In other words, Solomon did not learn anything from watching his dad. David had 12 wives. Look at verse 13. Solomon had 700. Yeah, what? <laughs> Imagine his credit card statements every month. Okay, 
700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. There are just 300 more wives that aren't of royal birth. By the way, we used to have a little song we sang when I was growing up in the Baptist church. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. That's great theology right there. This would have been Solomon's song. Red and yellow, black and white, they are all precious in my sight. I love all the women of the world. I mean, that's what's going on with Solomon. So it says he, he has 700 wives of royal birth, 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. The Berkeley translation says, translation says they perverted his mind. They perverted his mind. And it's because these foreign wives, guess what they brought with them into the marriage? They brought all of their foreign gods with them. And as a result, and we'll talk more about this when we go through the book of Ecclesiastes, which is Solomon's journal. Solomon begins to dabble in some levels of immorality that you just can't believe. In fact, what archeologists have discovered as it relates to Solomon, there's no way I could even talk about in a church service. But basically, and I'll say more about this when we go through Ecclesiastes, by the end of his life, he became a very effeminate, oversexed cynic. And he was like, what does it matter? Whatever you do, it's like chasing the wind. It's vanity, all vanity. So God appears to Solomon for the third time in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse nine. And it says, the Lord became very angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods. By the way, David had his issues, but he was never idolater, right? But it says in verse 11, so the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly, uh-oh, Tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. In other words, God says, Solomon, I'm not going to do it in your lifetime. By the way, that's grace. I'm not going to do it in your lifetime. But Solomon, know this. When you die, the great nation of Israel is going down. The great nation of Israel, okay? The nation that originally had mottos like, in God we trust. One nation under God. Listen, those were original with the nation of Israel. And God says, you're going down. And by the way, <laughs> I can't just skip this. There are some incredible parallels between what's going on in our nation right now and what went on in Old Testament nation of Israel. And it's another series for another time. But I tell you, we're on a slippery slope. I have never said this in my life. And I'm one of those people God's going to put on the throne, God's going to put in the White House, God's going to put in the Senate, the Congress, whoever he, he chooses. I'm going to do my part. But God, it says he establishes these things. Romans chapter 13. I will tell you this. I do believe 2020, November, most important election in the history of our country. So let me give you just a little course in how to vote. Not who to vote, how to vote. You vote principle and platform. You don't vote for people and personalities. Because God can do anything with people and personalities. In fact, you know what you're going to see in 2 Kings? God used some incredibly evil, wicked kings to accomplish what he wanted to happen. I love one of the verses. I think it's in Proverbs 22, verse 1. It says, the hearts of kings are like rivers of water in the hand of God. He just directs them wherever he wants. So just kind of keep that in mind as we're heading into election time. Principles, 
platforms, not people and personalities. Let me give you, a, people love it when I bring this chart out because you know there's gonna be some incredible art taking place. But let me just give you just a little Israel. This is the nation of Israel. Who was the first king? Saul, right? And how long did Saul reign? Okay, I heard you. I heard 40 years. Heard some of you at home. And then David took the throne and we just talked about it tonight. How long did David reign? 40 years, good. And now Solomon is on the throne. And how long does Solomon reign? 40 years, good. So for 120 years, we have a united kingdom, okay? After Solomon dies, his son, Rehoboam, takes the throne. It's the way it should be. But yet at the same time, there's another guy by the name of Jeroboam, who has nothing to do with Rehoboam. You would think they were twins, but they're not. He's not related to Solomon. He's thinking, why can't I be king? And so there's this conflict that breaks out between Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and Jeroboam, this guy who wants to be king. And as God predicted, write this date down mentally, in 930 BC, there was a civil war. Now you may remember when we talked through the Joshua and Judges that when, when, when the, the nation of Israel went into the promised land, they went in as 12 tribes, they divided up the land to conquer it. When the civil war took place, 10 of the tribes went to the north. They became known as the Northern Kingdom and from here on out they are referred to as Israel. Two of the tribes stay in the south. They're known as the Southern Kingdom. From here on out, they are known as the nation of Judah. The Northern Kingdom falls to the Assyrians in 722 BC, so they made it what? They made it uh, from 930, they made it about 200 years. They were annihilated and you will find zero evidence of any of the 10 tribes ever today. The two tribes in the south, they made it to 586 BC when Nebuchadnezzar swept in with Babylon, destroyed Jerusalem, took many of the Jews into captivity. It was known as a Babylonian period of captivity. We'll talk about this some over the next few weeks. And they were held captive for 70 years. Now I just point this out, think of it as a teaching moment. Because as you read through 2 Kings, and hopefully you'll read it before next week, if you miss that, you just won't understand what you're reading. You'll be totally lost because the writer interweaves what's going on in the northern kingdom, Israel, and what's going on in the southern kingdom, Judah, at the same time. And if you don't have your thinking cap on, you'll get confused. You have to constantly remember Judah, southern kingdom. Israel, northern kingdom. But there's a civil war. And if you were to just read the book of 1 Kings, you would place it at the feet of Solomon. But it really isn't Solomon's fault. It's because David had some issues. David has some character flaws that he never dealt with and he passed them down to his child, Solomon, and Solomon picked them up, and Solomon took them to a whole new level. Do you remember a verse that we looked at a few weeks ago when we were going through our 10 Commandments series? We looked at Deuteronomy chapter five, verse nine, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. In other words, if a parent has a certain pet sin, we'll call it an evil bent, and that is left unchecked. I promise you, it is going to be passed down to your child. This isn't a curse, this is just a principle. Monkey see, monkey do. They're gonna observe you. If it's okay for you, it's gonna be okay for them. So you're gonna pass it down to child. They're gonna perfect it, and they're gonna pass it down to ch their, their children. And it'll go right down to the third or fourth generation unless somebody in that process stops it. And we'll see that next week in 2 Kings. We'll see that next week. But you can see that principle unfolding. Now, let me just say this. Before we look at the end of the book, I want to show you something uh, 
in, in 1 Kings chapter 16, it's like a breath of fresh air. Like there's all this heaviness and darkness and civil wars. And then all of a sudden there's a breath of fresh air. It's like God does this all the time. We saw it right after Joshua and Judges. What was the next book? Ruth. It's like, oh yeah, Ruth, right? Everybody loves the book of Ruth. It's 1 Kings 16. But before I do that, uh, I came across something this week by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, if you're not familiar with him, he was a British writer, he was a theologian, he taught at Oxford, he taught at Cambridge. Uh, he's written books like Mere Christianity, Screwtape Letters, which is kind of a spiritual warfare book. He wrote The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, numerous Christian books. He wrote an article in 1948. Now we're right in the middle of COVID-19, we're right in the middle of all this social unrest, and uh, economy's a disaster, and schools are a disaster, and it's just such a dark, feels like almost hopeless time. And I thought I would read something to you. This is an article that he wrote in 1948. And it's called, On Living in an Atomic Age. Let me see if it encourages you. He says, in one way we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. You could put COVID-19 there. He says, how are we to live in an atomic age? I am tempted to reply why as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year or as you would have lived in the Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed, as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir and madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. This is the first point to be made. And the first action to be taken, I love this, is to pull ourselves together. If we are going to be destroyed, listen, if we are going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, I would add, and going to the gym. Not huddled together, I love this, not huddled together like frightened sheep thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. Notice what he puts in parentheses. A microbe can do that. But they need not dominate our minds. You know what he's saying? Stop living in fear. As Christians, we haven't been given a spirit of fear, but of power. See, fear makes us irrational. Fear counsels out the evidence and the proof and the reality that there's a God on the throne who is exactly in control. So I hope that's a breath of fresh air to you. That's some truth right there. That'll preach right there. And Jesus said the truth will set you free. Now, back to 1 Kings chapter 6. That was just a little commercial. Back to 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. During this dark time, look what happens. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, where were they? South. Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, north. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. I'm going to give you a chart next week. You can download it, take it home with you, where I break out the kings and the prophets that served and, and, and with all the kings. By the way, when you get to the end of 1 Kings, you're finished with the Old Testament. 
Everything after 1 Kings fits within these books. All the prophets, all the, everything just fits right in. I'll show you how that all fits in next week. But all the kings that were in the north, every one of them, every one of them says they did what was evil in God's eyes, just like their father. There was not one good king in the northern kingdom, Israel. There were a few who broke the pattern in the southern kingdom, Judah. But what's interesting about Ahab is he's a bad dude. I mean, because it says that he was more evil in the eyes of the Lord than all of those before him. So he's like the baddest of all the bad dudes, right? In fact, Ahab married a woman that you'll recognize, Jezebel. And there's a reason that none of you name your daughters Jezebel, right? Nobody wants to name a daughter Jezebel. Well, let me tell you what Jezebel did. She introduced Israel to demon worship, to witchcraft, to the occult. That's the nation of Israel. Now think about this. In all the midst of all this evil, all this darkness, all this chaos, a prophet shows up on the scene. His name is Elijah. Nobody knows his roots. Nobody knows where he came from. He just comes out of nowhere. And God places Elijah right in front of Ahab to confront him. And I just want you to understand something because I'm going to be honest with you. Most of us as Christians, we've gotten really, really soft. I mean, we're really, yeah, I'm all about the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace. I get that, right? But as a mature Christian, we have instructions at time to rebuke, at time to reprove, at times we have to correct, at times we have to speak the truth in love. Sometimes that's the way God has called us to operate. So here in, in Kings, just when things look dreadful, just when things look horrible, just when things look impossible, just when things look like they can't get any worse, along comes Elijah. And Elijah's like, hey, pleased to meet you, Ahab. I'm Elijah. Just so you know, buddy, you're not going to experience a moment's peace as long as I'm around. And I'm planning on being around all of your days. And some of the coolest stories in the Bible take place in the latter part of 1 Kings through the ministry of Elijah. So much so that this fall, I'm going to take out four or five weeks and we're going to do a series just on Elijah. There are some incredible stories there. But I got to wrap this up. But there are some incredible, relevant lessons from this ancient book. Let me give them to you. First of all, Unchecked sinful bents are passed from the parent to the child. I just will tell you this. Parents, as parents, we have to deal with sin in our lives. We can't just ignore it because if we don't, I promise you, our children, they're no different than Solomon. They're watching. They're observing. You're telling them it's okay. And I promise you, they will pick it up. They will perfect it and they will take it to another level. If you're one of those parents, you know, you just love to party all the time, party in the driveway, party in the street, party in the cul-de-sac, party, party, party. I promise you they're watching. And not only will they start younger, they'll party hardier. So you have to deal with that. Unchecked sinful bents are passed from the parent to the child. You see it in David and Solomon. Second, we are most vulnerable when we least expect the temptation. We saw this with Solomon. When things were at the as best as they could possibly be, he has the midlife crisis. Let me tell you something. You will never live long enough to outlive temptation. So if you ever get to the place where you don't think you're vulnerable, man, you are in a high-risk zone. We are the most vulnerable when we least expect the temptation. When I hear people say, maybe they heard someone had an affair or someone did something, and they say, I would never do that. I'm like, ooh. Mm. You know what Satan thinks when he hears that? We'll see. We'll see. Third, 
God always has the right person to match the hour. We see that in the life of Elijah. Now we don't have Elijah's today. And we don't have Jeremiah's today. And we don't have Isaiah's today. We don't even have Billy Graham's today. I mean, I remember in the early 90s when Billy Graham, time made Billy Graham the, the time man of the year. He was on the cover and the reporter interviewed him and was talking about the millions of people that had responded to the gospel under his ministry. And the reporter asked Billy Graham, who is gonna take your place when you're no longer here? And Billy Graham's response was, God always has someone waiting in the wings to step up. Let me suggest this. I think as Christians, we have been the silent minority long enough. And I think that it's time for us to step up. And sometimes that means we love. And that means we do all those things that we love doing, but there are some times that you have to deliver a hard message. And sometimes you have to deliver the truth in love. And usually when you do that, as you're gonna see in the life of the prophets, it doesn't make you really popular, but it may make you really godly. And here's the last one. When life seems especially dark, God comes especially close. I think we've learned that over the past few months. When times seem especially dark, God comes especially close. As I said, some of the coolest stories in the book of 1 Kings, they're in the latter part is Elijah in the darkness of that era, walked close with God. And as a result, God used him to be a voice and to be a light in the darkness. I think this is what God is calling us to. I actually think what we're going through in our culture is a good thing. I think it's a wake up call to Christians who've been too quiet, who've been too silent, and we've stopped being salt, and we've stopped being light. And God says, now I need you more than ever. And we're either gonna step up and stand in the gap, or we're not. But I tell you what, we learned that lesson from this ancient book, this incredible book of 1 Kings. We'll pick up 2 Kings next week. Father, thank you. You're so awesome. When I look at the, the people say, where's the grace in the Old Testament? Oh my goodness. The nation of Israel for years and years and years and centuries and centuries and centuries, you said, I'm warning you, I'm warning you, I'm warning you, I'm warning you, I'm, I'm being patient. You need to get your act together. You need to quit disobeying me. You need to follow my principles and my priests. I'm warning you, it's not gonna end well. And finally, God said, all right, if I let it go on any longer, I'm enabling you. We gotta have some tough love. Father, we don't always like that story, but sometimes, sometimes that's how you operate. It's how you operated then and it's how you operate now. It's how you operate sometimes within nations and it's how you sometimes operate in our personal lives. And so we thank you and we're reminded that your mercies are renewed every morning and that your faithfulness is great. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God who sent the hounds of heaven after us. Not us pursuing you, God, but you pursuing us because you love us so much. We thank you for the book of 1 Kings. 
and the principles that we learn from it. In your name, we pray we give you the glory through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.